Our reading is again in the Epistle to Romans, chapter 12. I mean, so I think I said to you once before recently, <coughs> excuse me, being a little bit hoarse, that I've been sort of living in the Epistle to Romans for a little while. Um, it's full of um, teaching, of course. It's deep, it's extensive, it's most challenging in so many ways. And I'm very glad indeed that uh, the, the program put before us for our Lawsley morning uh, teaching sessions is concentrating for some time on some of the epistles of Paul because they are the fundamental uh, teaching, apart from the very uh, limited number but infinitely precious words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the teaching of these men, with Paul outstanding among them, of course, uh, presents us with the body of, of doctrine which we are required to address ourselves to and which we are trying to address ourselves to again, afresh, in uh, the months ahead. It just happened that I had been in, in Romans for a bit and I, this time and the next time uh, we'll... Uh, right, wind up the, the book of Romans. You see, you can't be serious starting at chapter 12 and the 16 chapters. Well, all I mean to do is just to point to the, the main elements in the remaining chapters of Romans, which is that part of it, as we saw before, where Paul turns to um, speak to the saints in the church there, and of course, through the Holy Spirit to us, about um, not so much the profound... Uh, uh, theological matters he was speaking of before, or even the chapters in which he spoke of our responsibilities to and service to God, but in the <coughs> passage at the end of the epistle, a long one, where he addresses particularly our responsibility as disciples in churches of God, of course, to whom he was writing, in relation to our, our service to God and to one another and to the world around us. And uh, I just want to, after we have a reading which consists of chapter 12 in a moment, to point out one or two key verses in these remaining chapters uh, and outlining no more than what the content of them is. But I want to read the whole of chapter 12 because it's important. And we did look at the first two verses last time I spoke and saw how closely they were linked to that amazing doxology which closes chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how inseparable his judgments and his ways past tracing out. Chapter 12 begins, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not fashioned according to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace that was given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but so to think as to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to each man a measure of faith. For even as we have many members in one body, and all the members have not the same office, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and severally members one of another. And having gifts differing according to the grace that was given to us, 
whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith or ministry, let us give ourselves to our ministry, or he that teacheth to his teaching, or he that exhorteth to his exhorting, he that giveth, let him do it with liberality, and he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. In love of the brethren, be tender, affectioned one to another, in honour preferring one another, in diligence not slothful, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, communicating to the necessities of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind, one toward another. Set not your mind on high things, but condescend to things that are lowly. Be not wise in your own conceits. Render to no man evil for evil. Take thought for things honourable in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as in you lieth, be at peace with all men. Avenge yourselves, beloved. But give place. Um, <clears throat> Avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give a place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. But if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him to drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, That is um, is just a bang, 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 as it were. You would say point after point after point of absolutely fundamental uh, personal teaching for personal service to the Lord. Um, it has been said by many commentators that the opening two verses, which we read again, I beseech you to present your bodies and so on, um, refer very especially at the beginning of this um, chapter of teaching uh, by the Apostle to our relationship with God himself. Um, now, I think this, this is true, of course. This is a fundamental orientation of our spiritual lives as uh, the subject of verses 1 and 2 there. Now, verses 3 and... Um, three to eight, I suggest to you, uh, are matters that we ought to address to ourselves as it will, personally, individually, but collectively too. We're saying certain important things to ourselves in verses three to eight about our service. And um, that includes a little bit about spiritual gifts, which we're not going to go into as a subject tonight. And then on, uh, from verses 9 to 16, we are just received this uh, barrage, as it were, of commandments and exhortations and, and demands and requirements uh, about our Christian behaviour, um, mainly in relation to one another as fellow servants of the Lord. And the closing verses of this passage, from uh, 17 to the end, turn to turn our thoughts, I think, towards our Christian service in relation to, and our spiritual attitudes in relation to other people who are not the Lord's people, 
that big world out there and in it quite a lot of possible antagonism uh, to us. Hence, verse 19 says, Avenge not yourself, beloved. I would hope that it's not a subject that would even arise in, in our relationships with one another, but with others outside, as it were, avenge not yourselves if that enemy hunger. So it even would take in those who might be uh, have an animosity towards us. So th this chapter 12 is just a, a, a very comprehensive um, laying upon us by, by the apostle, laying upon the disciples of the Lord Jesus by the apostle of all the elements which are Christian attitude and Christian service um, should embody and should have regard to. And uh, just to read it through, as I read it through deliberately very quickly, is to remind ourselves just how easily and readily, and I find myself uh, reminding myself in, in this again, studying Romans, how many times have I read this chapter and just run through all of these uh, and said, hmm, yes, uh, tick, 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 as it were. But really, they demand, every one of them, these verses, these challenging verses, as to stop and ask ourselves the question, am I getting anywhere near the demands that the Holy Spirit's laying upon us through the Apostle here? Um, in diligence, not slothful, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Yes, well, I try, we say to one another, say, say to ourselves, but we really need to stop on these verses, take time with them, personally, prayerfully, to ask the Lord to show us just where we may be failing, particularly in relation to some of these requirements that are in this amazing list of requirements. Be of same, the same mind one towards another, you see. You just put that out of it. And it reminds me to go back to Philippians, which um, Steve is now taking us uh, through in the teaching um, programme. Be the same mind one towards another. Someone has said, Steve, I'm sure you, you know that about the epistle to the Philippians. Um, one commentator, I don't think it's the whole answer to it, but by any means, but has said that the only verses of importance in the epistle to the Philippians is one in the last chapter which says, Exhort syndicate and Yodia to be a one, one, one mind in the Lord. That's what the Epistle to the Philippines is all about. Well, it's not what it's all about, but it is obviously an important matter because that's the epistle that gives us that priceless presentation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have this mind in you that also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Um, so this crops up in here again with Paul. Now, as I say, there are reference to one or two of the spiritual gifts here, and we're not going into that. Paul writes more about them, of course, as we've seen in other occasions in the epistle to the Corinthians, the matter of spiritual gifts. But he does refer to them there. And then he goes on to this long list of matters um, from verses 9 to 16 about matters which we've got to address ourselves too. Um, yes, we have spiritual gifts, and thank God for them. We've got natural endowments too, and the two go together. But uh, when we come to uh, all these successive exhortations and commandments, bless them that rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them that weep, we begin to realize that um, apart from focusing perhaps on specific spiritual gifts, he mentions prophecy and teaching, 
and one or two here, we have a daily responsibility to address ourselves to responsibilities which may not be specifically attached to one particular spiritual gift, but are obligations on us as disciples of the Lord Jesus and to try to give effect to this, this list here before us with all this challenge. So I just mention that, first of all, because I just want very quickly to refer to the, the broad content of the chapters which follow this. This is the background. This is the, the canopy, as it were, over all that he has to say in the rest of the epistle about our responsibilities to one another, uh, to um, fellow disciples, to, to each other, ourselves, to fellow disciples, and to, to the world out there. So, and, and he begins it in chapter 13 with this um, unique passage, I think it is, in the New Testament about subjection to the, the, the powers that be, as we often say. Na uh, national, uh, powers with national responsibility, governments. And of course, this is a big subject. This could com command a lot of our consideration and discussion. And actually, there's been quite a lot of controversial teaching in the commentators and Romans about this as to how exactly we should interpret it. I think it's basically clearly set forward that God is sovereign. The point that's being made in chapter 13, where he says that um, let every soul be in subjection to higher powers. Well, there's no power but of God. I'm not going into all he says about that, but it is an exhortation, as you know, about the Christian's responsibility, the disciple of the Lord Jesus' responsibility uh, to um, be model citizens of the country or the, the form of government under which they live. It is not a command, as has been falsely claimed by <coughs> rather rogue interpreters uh, to suit themselves as being um, a commandment to, to obey and follow everything any government might require of us. We can readily see in reading this closely and laying it alongside, as we always have to do with teaching passages in the scriptures, alongside other teaching and broader bands of teaching on these subjects, um, to realise this is not saying that we must give total obedience to any form of government. We only need to stop and think how the apostles in their own day uh, had to go to prison because they um, would not tolerate the, their mouths being closed in preaching the gospel by the government they were under, the council or whoever they were, and um, they put on record, and it's on record very clearly in scripture, we must obey God rather than men. So there is a vast principle, of course, that we need to apply by, not easily in all circumstances, pretty easily in our own country, like uh, a well-conducted um, compared with us, as we can see so clearly in the world today, we're happy to live in a well-conducted um, government, stable government, imperfect by all means, but um, stable and considerate, and uh, one we have to be very thankful for. for. Some of the biggest problems that Christians have faced in the past and even today, in the face of some governments, whose edicts cannot just be accepted and obeyed as they're given, um, is such that we need to be thankful for that, and we are, I know. But um, it, it, the principles are laid down here, we're not going to go into them, but um, render to all the Jews, says verse 7 here, 
tribute to whom tribute, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honour to whom honour. Very broad principles of, of obedience to and subjection to civil powers. I don't want to attempt to stay on that um, particularly long, but just to draw attention on the way through these, this chapter and the next two, one or two, two key verses. And of course, really the key verse to this is in the beginning of chapter 13, where the word says that every soul be subject to the higher powers. There is no power of God and the powers that be are ordained of God. We could spend a long time discussing the word ordained there, as I've been hinting just now. We're not going to do that at the moment. Verse 11 is the next one that I highlighted just to draw attention to here. Knowing that the season, that now it is high time for you to awake out of sleep, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. Was Paul thinking here of the imminence of the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Many would have thought so, because of course the apostles in their day did have an early expectation, very understandable, uh, that the Lord may be coming very soon. We have learned by the passage of time that they may not have been entirely got to the right end of the stick as far as that's concerned, uh, but it's right to be in expectation of the Lord coming. But as for God's time scales, he had already addressed himself to this to the disciples before we went back to heaven and said it's not uh, for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has set within his own authority. Uh, but he says here uh, in verse 11 of chapter 13, knowing the season that now it's high time for you to awake out of sleep. Now, what that means that we could discuss for a long time, but it does point surely to the fact that we live in a world where its attitude to spiritual things is such that we can just be drawn into a kind of lackadaisical attitude to it like people around about us. I confess that myself and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And when he says high time for you to wake out of sleep, it may not be directly pointing to the Lord's coming, that may not be exactly what was in his heart, but just pointing to the, the saints in Rome. They were living in a a very authoritarian, under a very authoritarian government, the Roman government, but it was a secure one. And you know, it's undoubtedly in the sovereign purposes of God that the Lord Jesus should have come into this world at that point in history, where Roman government was the dominant political force in the land of Israel into which the Lord Jesus was born. And it was very authoritarian, it could be pretty rough, but it was stable, and they had a lot to be thankful for. Um, even when you read the story of Pilate in connection with the Lord's uh, uh, judgment before Pilate, um, we uh, see how in God's sovereignty, the Roman government um, deleted, or deputized as it were, delegated the word I'm looking for, political authority to uh, governments like um, the government of, of, um, of what we know as the land of Israel at that time. And so with King Herod in his place doing this and that and so on, it was a stable government and a lot going for it, the Roman government. Of course, at the worst period in its history, it was fearful. And um, <clears throat> there came the time when it became intensely persecuting that government of Christians. But uh, I think Paul was as much as anything else 
reminding the chapter world in Rome what we need to be reminded of, that we can just slip into a rather um, <clears throat> easier, um, lackadaisical, perhaps too strong a word, but he speaks of being awakened out of sleep, and we need to be jolted sometimes as to <coughs> the man's the requirements of the Holy Spirit on us as believers, especially collect and gather together in churches of God. I think this was in his mind, though he may have been referring to the Lord's coming as well. And he closes that chapter with the, another lovely doxology, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not, no provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof. Time and time throughout this epistle, and in the other epistles too, Paul just seems to break away from the particular narrative or teaching and throw in, as it were, a, a, a little gem of exhortation. And um, this is one of them at the end of chapter um, 13. He then moves on in chapter 14 to deal with um, how we relate to one another in connection with our personal peculiarities. And my word, we have them, haven't we? All of us. Uh, and Paul is um, pointing to some of these, and uh, although the specific examples he applies to Rome at that time, and the Church of God in Rome may not directly apply to us, the matter of one person's conscience about eating being different from another man's, it may not be a major factor among us as believers in our day to a great extent, but the principle is being laid down here of mutual consideration in these matters and not riding roughshod at all, in any sense. That's the theme of chapter 14 here. Um, not riding, riding roughshod in any sense over anyone else's conscience. Indeed, considering very carefully not to is exactly what he's speaking about um, in, in uh, this passage, where he says um, in verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, judge ye rather, no man put a stumbling block in his brother's way or an occasion of, of falling. And so uh, we can pluck one or two of these verses out just to grasp the principle that's establishing here of mutual consideration in matters where we might quite validly have varying shades um, of view. I did put a mark as one of the verses in this whole part of, of um, Romans which we need to address is verse 17 out of verse chapter 14 where the apostle says for the kingdom of god is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the holy spirit he's been speaking about different opinions about eating and drinking which is why he mentions it here and he says those of us who have been called into the kingdom of god we shouldn't let these matters get in our way and in any sense <coughs> hinder us in our service because what it's all about our service in the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now I've read these very, very verses, verses many times, and I've um, recently looked at, at them again, tried to analyse them a little bit. And what I think I see in them are three things. Well, there are three things mentioned. The kingdom of God should be characterised by a righteousness, b peace and three, joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, why did Paul choose these matters to refer to? I suggest to you the matter of righteousness is the matter which challenges us each one as individuals. If 
This is what the kingdom of God's about, in God's sight. People, individuals, who are concerned about their own personal righteousness. Now, one hesitates to talk about this because you immediately feel, I do, and perhaps I'm not the only person, um, who feels that even reluctant to talk about this because you immediately become aware of so many gaps in one's own life about personal righteousness. But this is boot first. Righteousness. And I think this is the key, the Apostle is saying, to what the Kingdom of God is about, what our service together in the Kingdom of God is about. Attention to personal righteousness. I found this, for the first time in studying the Epistle to the Romans, very challenging. I think this is a personal appeal to individuals. And if we are careful about it, even if by the Lord's help we can achieve a certain degree, it will certainly will be a long way from perfect, personal righteousness, that will contribute to peace among the people of God, among disciples in churches of God. Um, I just advise you to stop and think about this privately, how personal righteousness, if, if exercised by the Spirit of God and helped by the Spirit of God, we could achieve uh, more in that area, it would, be, it would secure a sense of peace in the churches, in the fellowship, among the Lord's people generally. Now, I'm not suggesting that um, there's a, a particular lack of peace. Indeed, many of us uh, at the present moment are part of the fellowship in Manchester here and other places. We're so thankful to the Lord that there's this peace, that there's not conflict, a lot of interpersonal conflict or, or difficulties. But it seemed to me that this is saying that this depends to quite a large extent on the individual's achievement by the Lord's help or righteousness in their own life. This makes for peace. And what actually um, makes for conflict in churches, and back to the Philippians and, and Paul's concern about two sisters there, um, is that attitudes or issues Become so can become so big in our minds that um, they disturb our peace personally and that inevitably disturbs the peace of those around us who may differ from, from us in one respect or another. When I've seen this, I'm just old enough now to have not moved widely across the fellowship but to have observed or heard about situations where there was really a lack of peace for periods, whole periods of time among the people of God and finally it seemed to come down to interpersonal failures and righteousness. Righteousness in what sense? You can read through this whole section of, of, of Romans which we haven't time to do it. See how Paul stresses um, mutual consideration true and genuine humility, not the the, the, the stuff that one hears people speak about sometimes. I was told once, never believe anyone who claims to be humble. That's the one person you can be sure is not. Uh, but uh, whether that's overstating the matter, um, pride of, of, of attitude and so on gets in in small ways and then can become larger and that destroys. <coughs> so it is elements 
of personal righteousness going astray, which I think can do more than anything to destroy peace, which is the second element he gives of three to characterise the kingdom of God. And that's very, very serious. Um, <clears throat> not eating and drinking, that was because he'd been referring to the problems of, of sensitivities about food and so on. Uh, but peace, righteousness and peace. And he says joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, peace is not the same thing as joy. Joy is an advance in peace. And it seems to me that if the Holy Spirit is saying to us here, if we are attentive to the matter of personal righteousness, and that includes humility and all the big issues he had spoken about in, in the previous chapter, about personal attitudes to one another and consideration of one another, that will make for peace. That will be a, a, a background to our service, which the Lord can use, and out of it is bound to flow a sense of joy in service. So I think I thought more about these three things than I've ever done before. Righteousness, leading to, in personal terms, leading to a collective sense of peace, um, which is so essential and so welcome in the Lord's service, and flowing out of that an increasing um, uh, sense of joy in spiritual service. Just leave that for, for thought because time's passing and I just wanted to draw attention to the content of uh, the other parts of um, chapter 15 and of this epistle because the apostle goes on to speak of the strong, verse 15 verse 1, being able to bear the, the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Here we swing back to this matter of, of personal righteousness, not to please ourselves. Let each of one of us please his neighbour for that which is good and to edify him. It all comes back to righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is to be the characteristic of the kingdom of God. Now, the next uh, verse I wanted to draw your attention to is verse 4 of chapter 15. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that through patience and through comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. That is a verse we often quote. I only mark it just now to quote in this brief resume of the closing parts of the Epistle to the Romans. Uh, to remind ourselves that this is where it comes in Scripture, this text that we so often quote. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Uh, this is the context of that. And just, we just note that in passing. In verse 13 of this chapter, another of these little gems of... Um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Gems of exhortation and encouragement and joy that the Apostle throws into his epistles. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may be, may be abound in hope and in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of his lovely little golden um, messages that he drops into these epistles. And then in 29 of that chapter he says, And I know that when I shall come unto you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's a, always been a, a lovely um, <clears throat> expression, I think, in Paul's writings. 
his desire when he come, came, he was, he was really desirous of coming to Rome, as we know. He says in various places in this latter part of the chapter, he wants to go, get to them, he wants to meet them, he wants to see them. And he wants to come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Love the expression he uses there. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to go into chapter 16. I want to keep it. Some people have said that the epistle to the Romans ends at the end of chapter 15, really. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It sounds like it, doesn't it? But I don't think so. I like just on one final occasion to draw your attention to chapter 16. It's often neglected, it's chapter 16. And we're not going to skip over the list of names either. Because chapter 16 tells us something absolutely fundamental about what the whole epistle's about. And I'd like to come back to that on one other occasion. But just to point out that um, towards the end of his writing here in chapters uh, 14 and 15, the apostle refers to the fact that he wants to, he's very, very desirous of meeting them, getting to Rome. He had never got there. And he tells them, uh, he expresses that marvelous ambition, this man. He must have been tired, Paul, with his service. But he's stretching out Rome. Not just Rome. He's going to Spain. He says, I'm going to Spain and I'll be visiting you in Rome. It says it all here. I want to get to Spain and, 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 then, and visit you on the way there. First of all, he said, though, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what he says in the closing words of this book. I'm going to Jerusalem with a gift from the churches, uh, particularly in, in, in Europe, uh, which had made a collection for the poor. There was some poverty and difficulty in, Rome, uh, in Jerusalem at that time. And he says, I'm taking this gift to them. And he said, I want your prayers for two things. I want your prayers for, for me, that my prayers to the Lord will be joined to yours, that he'll lead, that I will be able to come and see you, and that I will be able to go to Spain. Now, we don't know whether Paul ever got to Spain. The likelihood is he did not, as far as the history given to us in the scriptures, and even in other secular literature is concerned. It appears he didn't get to Spain. But he was going to Jerusalem first now with this gift and he anticipated trouble there and he got it. You need to go back into the book of the Acts of the Apostles to see exactly what happened to him. When he got to Jerusalem, um, his reference is here in the closing verses of Romans. When he got to Jerusalem, he found that um, many of the disciples, people who had turned to the Lord, were still so steeped in their Judaistic attitudes that they were not accepting uh, Paul and everything that he said and did. And he anticipated a rough time there, and he got a rough time. Um, but the Lord brought him through it, and he was asking the Roman church to be praying for him. People in Rome, many of them Gentiles, who had just couldn't quite get what was in these um, Judaizers in, back in Jerusalem who had become disciples of the Lord Jesus. Why were they making trouble and, and, and getting obstreperous, some of them, about old um, Judaizing ideas belonging to the, the, the religion that, of, of, that they'd left behind to follow Christ? This is where the adversary was working. Paul did have difficulties when he got there, but by the grace of God, he came through them. And, of course, as you know, it was while he was in, 
in Rome on that visit, which, in Jerusalem, in that visit which he refers to here in writing to the Romans, that he was, I was going to say forced, but led, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to say, uh, when pressure came on him, not only from the Jews, but from the Roman authorities in Jerusalem, I appealed to Caesar. And that, of course, was a critical point in his history. That settled that he would, he would go to he would go to Rome, all right, because he, had, as a Roman citizen, full status as a Roman citizen, Paul knew he was going to Rome. He had appealed to Caesar, and uh, some people think that that may have sealed a last chance of ever getting to Spain. We don't know about that, but it certainly took him to Rome, and we know the circumstances. Uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles almost closes with the words, and so we came to Rome. So he did get to see these dear folks in Rome. He'd been writing all these marvellous things too. And whom, as we'll see, perhaps on one final occasion, he had such a deep affection to. How many of the people, these people's names he knew? We'll come back to that. But he was really determined, by the help of the Holy Spirit, that he would get to Rome. He administered the Lord's word to them in all these respects that we've only touched on very briefly in passing and in summary in this marvellous epistle and um, he looked forward to the time when he would he would get to see them and um, he hoped they would uh, help him on his journey further afield which he may never have achieved but it was all in the Lord's will for him because he had learned as we read in another place in whatsoever state I am living to be content and although his, his spirit was reaching forward why Spain you may say because Spain uh, was the country in Western Europe which had the closest connection of all European countries to Rome. Several Roman senators actually came, or were Spaniards by nature. I was only in reading some of the background of this that I discovered this, that there were some of the very uh, prominent people in authority in Rome whose background, frankly background, was in Spain. So Paul uh, had his own reasons for wanting to go there. But he was in the Lord's hands, and uh, he was happy to leave it to him, and so may we be. So we'll just leave these thoughts for the present, and um, time for a prayer, uh, time now, and... Um